And let's pray together. God, our Father, you have uh, laid down the proposition for us here this morning to be more like Jesus. We've seen that in Scripture. We've heard that in song. And Lord, we pray now as we uh, wrestle together through your word and what you have for us today, that you would, uh, God, really move our hearts to consider ways that we can be more like Jesus. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Frances Ridley Havergal was a daughter of an English Anglican priest, and she was also a poet. And once she was on a trip to Germany, and a plaque under a portrait of a crucifixion of Jesus, uh, what was written underneath it fascinated her. And it said, I gave my life for thee. What have you done for me? Inspired, Havagal penned a poem, but after reading it, she was disappointed with the work that she had just created, so she threw it into an open fireplace where she was staying, and at the moment, the edges of it started to burn, and then a downdraft of wind came and blew it right back out of the fireplace, back onto the floor, unburned except for just the edges of it. And she took it immediately as a sign from God that he wanted her to keep that poem. Well, before Francis died in 1879, the verses of the poem she tried to burn became the framework for one of the greatest hymns in English history. I gave my life for thee. Now, let me share verse one with you today at the beginning of a sermon. And at the conclusion of today's sermon, Pastor James is going to come and sing for us all four verses of this 19th century English hymn. Verse one says, I gave my life for thee, my precious blood. I shed, that thou might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. And the chorus goes, I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Now, we've spent the past four Sundays plus Christmas Eve in an Advent sermon series called The World Needs Christmas. And as we learned in this series, the world needs Christmas because Christmas is about the birth of Christ. That's the account of Christ's birth. And the save, he's the Savior of our world who came to save his people from their sins. And he saved us not just for eternity, but he saved us for the here and now as well so that we could live lives that would honor him, lives that have meaning, lives that have purpose and value, lives that accomplish God's work and his will in this world. Yes, we are saved out of something. We're saved out of our sins. We're saved out of our former way of life. We're saved from the tendencies that our flesh wants to just uh, continue to overpower us and uh, saved from the power of sin so it doesn't have to rule in our lives. And we are saved into the life that God wants us to live in this unbelieving world. Now, the book of James happens to be a general epistle, meaning not, it's not written to a specific church, but it's written to a cluster of churches, a group of churches, which became known regarding in the early church as the cradle of Christianity. You know, these were churches that were clustered around the northeastern uh, rim of the Mediterranean Sea, what is, was known at that time as Asia Minor, which we know predominantly today as Turkey. Now, in these churches, there appeared to be some real issues with orthopraxy, the living out of what they supposedly believed. Now, orthodoxy is having the right beliefs. Orthopraxy is having the right practice based upon 
those beliefs. Look at James chapter 1 and verse 22 with me for a moment. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Obviously, there were people in those churches, they were hearing the God's word being read, proclaimed to them regularly, but they weren't necessarily uh, leaving the assembled gathering and then putting those words into practice. Look at verse 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet, not, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get to just run your mouth. You don't get to just say whatever you want and whoever you want to say it to and however you want to say it. You don't get to do that. You've got to rein that tongue in. And if you really want true religion, take care of those who are hurting and needy. Take care of the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, those who are in distress, and don't let the world pollute you. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. It gets right down to brass tacks here. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now, I must mention here, Martin Luther struggled with the book of James. He called it a book of straw, a letter of straw, because he felt it promoted a works righteousness, a, a uh, work salvation model, which it, which it does not and I hate to disagree with the great church reformer, uh, because works do not save us. God's word is very clear on this. It's God's grace through believing faith that does. As Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of works uh, that anybody can boast. But I, I want you to notice verse 10 that's right next to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that speaks of the saving grace of our Father that, that encourages us to have faith in this one who saves us by grace. But then it says there, that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're created in Christ Jesus. We become a child of God in Christ Jesus, but God has prepared works for us to do out of that faith that he's created us in Christ Jesus, and he's planned these things well in advance. And actually, when it says we are his workmanship, we're God's artistic, God's creative expression uh, to the world to do these good works. And James raises this issue here. If you are not out doing good works in this world, if you're not doing that for the glory of God and for the good of others, do you really have a living, vibrant, saving faith? You say you got faith, but there's no fruit out there. So do you really have this saving, vibrant Saving faith, living faith, is that really true? Again, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, in chapter 2, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save? Is that really saving faith? If it doesn't, you know, inspire you to do anything, it doesn't lead you to do anything, God's Spirit doesn't, I mean, that, that doesn't sound like faith to me, 
James is saying. I mean, we're God's you know, workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. If nothing's happening out of that faith, is it really there? You know, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But, but if someone say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You know, some people probably are just looking for a fire insurance policy. But the, tr- the, the, the rubber meets the road when people live out their faith. Now, to our text for today. And it talks about treating wealthy and famous people with favoritism and looking down on the poor. Again, uh, this here is revealing to us some problems they had with their orthopraxy. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold rings and, and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and becomes judges with evil thoughts? You know, true Christians don't act like that. You know, if they ever do and they're corrected, they're rebuked, then they stop that behavior and they change their course of action. Now, this passage is an important text in a tradition uh, in the church that's known as Boxing Day, which goes all the way back to the 1200s. Now, you have to understand, in every English-speaking country on this planet, on the face of the earth, except for the United States of America, December 26th, yesterday, the day after Christmas, is known as Boxing Day. In the Middle Ages, churches throughout England kept small antique boxes by their entry, and throughout the year, parishioners placed coins into those boxes. And on December 26th, the day after Christmas, at a special festival, these alms boxes were opened, and the money was distributed throughout the community to the poorest of the poor. By 1500, the practice had expanded. Each servant brought an empty box to the home of where they worked, and the employer would place coins in them as well. And then, when Christmas time came, they would even put the leftovers that they had from their Christmas celebration into these boxes. And many lives were touched, and people helped through this ministry. Even today, many Christians around Christmas time seek out the very poor to help them with food, clothing, and household essentials, like uh, you know, helping with their heat or their electricity, their giving gift cards. That spirit of the Boxing Day continues on even to this day. And you know, as a person who grew up in poverty through no fault of my own, I understand the importance of the Boxing Day spirit. See, my father passed away when I was five years old, and they didn't have all of the social safety nets back then and programs developed back then that exist in our society today. My mother happened to be 26 years of age, had a 10th grade education, and had four children, didn't even have a driver's license, and had four children uh, living under seven years of age. And, and we lived 60 miles from the Canadian border in the, uh, you know, northern Minnesota. Well, one family in our community where we lived uh, gave us money that they had budgeted for Christmas that first year. This is 1966. They gave $150 to our family because they wanted us to be able to have Christmas 
that year. They gave up their Christmas. That was the money they were going to spend on buying gifts for one another and even spending on their Christmas meal. And they gave that up for us because they wanted us to celebrate Christmas. Well, 15 years ago, I was able to meet one of these family members because I was up on the Iron Range at a funeral home in, in uh, Hibbing, Minnesota. I uh, just had done, conf- you know, finished conducting a funeral in this funeral home, and I was walking across the parking lot when this gentleman came up to me. He was at that particular funeral, and he introduced himself to me, and I was able to thank him and his family for the gift that they gave to our family. And they were just humble, salt-of-the-earth people, people of faith, who understood the importance of what they were doing for my hurting family and in the important lessons that they were teaching their own children. Their children were learning some incredible lessons through those sacrifices that they all shared and made together as a family. And I just want you to know today that I'm so humbled uh, to pastor a church that is so generous to people in need. No one who ever participates in our SOS food share program and cannot afford to pay is ever turned away. In the first four years of that program, the average was helping seven families per month. It was nearly $10,000 that the church helped out in just those first four years of this SOS ministry. Our diaconate ministry is also weekly helping people out through our church's benevolence fund. Now more than ever during the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, our local school system, as well as a number of county agencies, have begun contacting our church about needs that they hope we can meet out here in the rural area. And our diaconate team is very good at vetting situations, getting people connected to resources and training and everything like that that can help improve their lives in the long run. And you know, when you think about it, with the prolific drug culture that exists in our world right now, with the high levels of alcohol consumption in our county, with, uh, of course, Plenty, uh, plenty of cases of infidelity going on and just plain stupidity, hard times can surface. And yes, foolishness can cause poverty, but so does unjust social systems, low wages, loans with excessive interests, legal systems which hurt the poor and allow better outcomes for the wealthy social prejudice against minorities and immigrants. Every one of these issues I just mentioned for you, has biblical passages, multiple many times biblical passages that condemn each one of those things. And there are also very few nations on the face of this planet where those things I've just described for you do not exist. Now, I must say, there are an infinite number of other things that can create poverty. Natural disasters, famines, floods, fires, including house fires, storms, tornadoes, monsoons, accidents, disability issues, crushing medical bills, health complications, the death of a family's main breadwinner, like in the case of my childhood. That's why I grew up in poverty. It's why we spent half of my childhood not even having uh, indoor plumbing. Uh, Economic decline in an area, in in a particular state, that can happen due to the closing of factories, mines, uh, you know, paper mills, uh, the depletion of natural resources in those areas. And Proverbs 17, verse 5 says this, Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go 
unpunished. During Christ's time on earth, many Pharisees and fellow Israelites viewed poverty with disdain, like it was uh, all the result of the laziness and poor choices and irresponsibility and selfish behavior of those who were poor. In that era, many like-minded people that I just described believed, believed that the poor deserved to be poor. And yes, in every culture, there will be some who deserve it. They absolutely deserve it. Some who have led destructive lifestyles. In other words, they have done it to themselves. They've made their bed, and then now they have to sleep in it. But I must tell you, you know, from 34 years of ministry, that the majority of the people that I've worked with over the years that are poor have just hit hard times. They've hit tough circumstances. Many of them are some of the hardest working people you've ever met in your life, but they've gotten bad breaks that life has dealt them. You know, as Jesus showed and taught in his ministry, and his own brother James wrote, which we're reading here, this is Jesus' brother writing here, who was not a believer or a follower of Jesus. But who's one of the first people Jesus appeared to when he rose from the dead? His brother James. That's one of the early people he appeared to. And this James came to believe in Jesus, and he writes these words that we have before us. So they're all teaching us that the poor are not to be judged. They are to be helped. And in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus urged his disciples to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick, and to tend to those in prison, he added no disclaimer. He didn't say, well, help them unless you find them in a state of laziness. Or make sure you go out and do everything you can for them unless you find out that they're sinful. Or, or go out and help them and do these things for them until you notice that they're exercising poor judgment. He simply directed his followers to help those who needed it the most. You know, and history also teaches us that one of the reasons the early church grew so rapidly was because its members shared what they had with others who were in need. And they did that without judgment. Again, I am so thankful to be part of a church like Mission Covenant that prayerfully, thoughtfully, and carefully helps people in need, making sure to never become codependent in that process, to never be an enabler, but to give people a hand up when they've been knocked down in life, and then to treat each person in this process, in need, with the dignity that they deserve as somebody who's been created in the image of God. You know, in the month of December alone, not counting the Christmas Eve love offering that's going to these poor young gals in, in West Kenya, okay, taking that right off the table, not even necessarily talking about anything that we've done for food share this month, okay, or anything with angel tree or mittens or any of those other good things that people are doing and their generosity in those areas. Right now, nearly $10,000 worth of money, goods, and services has been given in our church and passed along to those who need it the most. Many times I'm on the receiving end of these generous donations to be passed along, sort of as the conduit. And also, I'm often sought out by the diaconate with questions about where and when and how and how much and who should be helped. And I certainly don't see uh, or even know of all the generous help that is done through our church. But I must say this, that my heart is so full and so blessed by what I get to see as someone who was on the receiving end of that, you know, over five decades ago, 
to see the church doing this very same thing that so blessed my life. You know, one that really touched my heart this past month is when a person who had been deeply hurt by a neighbor, and I, it was so deep that I was hurting for this person because of the betrayal that took place. And when a serious ailment afflicted, afflicted this man and took away his ability to care for his family and to provide for his family, this injured person from our church stepped in to pass along generous gifts from other people in our church. And boy, did God do a number on my heart when he reminded me and this offended person in our church to not turn to bitterness or to not turn to anger. But what you need to do is to love this person and love his family because that's what Jesus would do if he were in your shoes. That is what the scriptures teach us to do. That is what the early church did. And it's one of the reasons why the early church was so effective. And this is what Boxing Day is all about. You know, when I, the hymn, I Gave My Life for Thee, that Pastor James is going to come and sing for us here in a few moments, when that came on the scene, it quickly became, in many English churches, the theme song for Boxing Day. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we're not always people who look deeply at church tradition. In fact, sometimes in our circles, in evangelical circles, we, we shun church tradition. But God, here we see a tradition within the church that's 800 plus years old that existed to help care for the less fortunate, those who are the neediest. And it was done right at the time of celebrating uh, Christmas and an opportunity for the church to live out the instruction and the teaching of Jesus, to follow and model what the early church had done. So God, thank you for the, this important lesson. And it isn't just a lesson from church history. It's a lesson from the Word of God. And it's a lesson that comes from the mouth of Jesus and from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that the spirit of that boxing day will continue to live on in this church and will continue to live on in each of our lives. God, we have no idea what lives might be touched along the way and who might be raised up and serve you because we simply do a, a, an act of kindness, of love, of generosity, uh, because you've been so good to us. God, it's out of that grace that we want to continue to minister as we look forward to 2021 in Jesus' name. Amen.